Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Charlie, and I'm a senior producer here at the IAI. My name's Harry, and I'm a member of the editorial team. So today we've got Cities of the Future, featuring one of the world's most foremost experts on sustainability, Lucelia Rodriguez. This took place in 2022 at How the Light Gets in Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Harry, tell us a little bit about the talk. So this talk explores the potential for a sustainable future through the lens of architecture. Because of course, the, the way our cities are designed really impacts how many emissions you have to you have to pollute and sort of how you organize yourself around emitting uh, carbon dioxide. Like if you have to drive to work, then you're going to use more than a city that's more walkable. And so considering that when you're designing your environment, it's really going to impact the, the necessary emissions you have to make. And it's quite interesting because there have been some cities like uh, Zurich who made a very specific choice not to design uh, their cities around around the car and they designed it around public transport and it looks like Sadiq Khan is trying to push us towards that direction. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with ULEZ and all the cycling infrastructure, it's definitely the direction we're going. And uh, I definitely think that we can assume that when when you build a city around the car, it almost feels like, well, that's a necessary thing. But if you take a look at Amsterdam, that was built for the car and then was ripped up for the bike. These are decisions that we can definitely make, and it's an important discussion to be had in our uh, city planning, certainly. Absolutely. So remember, if you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. And also remember that this event is in association with Nottingham University. Now it's time to welcome Lucia Rodriguez to Philosophy for Our Times. This is great. It's great because I'm very used to giving academic talks to people who are really into my area. And of course, this is a bit different. And this is a background. Um, I'm a professor of sustainable resilient cities at the University of Nottingham. Um, I had a department there. Uh, if you ever want to see some of the work the architecture students do, you can have head to our website. We've got an um, online exhibition, so you can see lots of the previous year's work. I also lead the, the, the Institute of Energy. At, or one of the deputy leads, and that uh, that's research across the whole university. So it's bringing all the knowledge across the university to deal with issues around energy and carbon management and sustainability. And I'm particularly uh, particularly leading this uh, leg of transport, mobility, and cities. So everything that needs to address the challenges of the cities. So everything that's related to mobility, everything that's related to transport and to people and the built environment, that's what I see. So my, my expertise and my work is very much sitting in the nexus of energy, people, the built environment and transport. And it's kind of the mix in the middle, which is what you're going to see today. 
Okay. To give it a little background, if you haven't, you probably some of you be uh, clued up on this, but some of you might not be. So uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this guy here, which is a molecule of carbon dioxide. Um, so we keep blaming this little guy here. Uh, and you know what? It, it's not to be blamed because actually greenhouse gases in general are good for the planet. This is what keeps our planet warm enough for us to survive. It's like a little blanket keeping a little bit of heat in so we're here and we're happy. Uh, however, when we have a bit too much of it, it's a bit like today. I don't know you guys, but we all left the house with really heavy coats because the summer wasn't expected to be back today. <laughs> Always a bit of the same. If you have a bit too much of it, you're just overdoing it. And that's what's happening. The excess greenhouses, particularly the excess of carbon dioxide, is what's causing global warming. And global warming, in turn, causes climate change. Uh, so what we're trying to, avo to do is try to avoid releasing so much greenhouses so that blanket remains healthy and our planet remains safe. The problem is, of course, that as we heard before, if you don't keep that warming to up 1.5 degrees, and uh, remember, any warming is bad because it's getting us out of balance, but 1.5 degrees is what the scientists worked out that is, is kind of a safe, we, we can just about manage the consequences. Now, I went to COP to represent Nottingham, and when I came back, a lot of people were asking, did COP do anything, or top COP26? That's the United Nations um, Climate Change Conference last November. And I said, well, you know, prior to COP, if the scientists worked out that all the pledges that everyone signed up for in the Paris Agreement in 2015, if all of them were met, then we were heading for a global warming of 2.1 degrees. After COP, we're heading to 1.8 degrees of warming. Now, any degree of warming is bad, and 1.8 is lower than 2.1, so actually it's successful. But I must repeat this, all the pledges must be met in full and on time for us to just manage that degree of warming. And let's just face it, humans have been very good at meeting all the pledges. <laughs> not on time, not ever fully, ever at all. And of course, we're running out of time in order to get there. So it's really important we all engage with this. And it's a really big task for everyone. So I always I start all my lectures every year showing a slide that says, panic. Because what I really want you to do is also panic with me. I know I have a, a bigger role to play in the sense that I'm teaching a lot of students. But also, part of my role is to get you to panic a little bit. So you do it a little bit too. And little bit by little bit, we can get there. So I, I live in Nottingham. I'm originally from Brazil. I've uh, been in Nottingham for almost 20 years. Nottingham has pledged to be carbon neutral by 2028, the first city in the UK. The first one to pledge, and the first one is trying to get to that target. Uh, that's really quite big. I've read this week that Copenhagen has just dropped the carbon neutrality target because they couldn't get funding for a particular big part of it. And they were meant to be the first one in Europe, I think. So it might be that Nottingham is, is if it's not the first in Europe, if it does achieve, is quite close. Now, it's not an easy task, as you must imagine, a whole city covered emissions. Everything we do at all times relieves, relieves carbon. Being here today, transporting all the stents here, yourself to the site, all the food we're eating, everything releases carbon. So it's a really big task. Nottingham has managed so far to get it down by 57.7% per inhabitant, and uh, that's one of the largest drops in the whole of Europe. So that's really good news. But also, a lot of the really big wins have been won. So we're getting down to the hardest bits to tackle. And that's what becomes a lot more difficult. Now, 
I work at Soji in the beaut beauty environment, transport, energy, and how people relate to those. Why it does important in this task? So the yellow bit is what econo economically is easy enough for low cost things we could tackle. So the beauty environment, you can see, you can reduce emission quite significantly in a rel relatively low cost way. It's not low cost for you and me, because you, as you're going to see, I'm going to tell you a bit more about your own home. Uh, but relatively to the governments and to the leaders across the world, it's a much cheaper way to deal with carbon emissions than some of the other issues. Now, we at the University of Nottingham, the group that I work on with my colleagues, uh, I tend to, I, sorry if I'm going to make up some words now, but I'm, I'm from Brazil, so I'm no, English is not my first language, I'm allowed. So uh, I try to divide our work in three sections. We say we, um, we look into electrify. You probably heard a lot about electrification. Why? Because we're trying to decarbonize our energy grid. So the more renewable we have into the en electricity grid, the less carbon we have released from the energy. So if you can make everything that we use electric, we could tend to reduce our carbon. And then in particular, it's transport. So you might be looking at purchasing an electric vehicle, if you are to purchase a vehicle next, and heating from building. So those are the two big things that we're going to electrify in the next few years. I also talk about rationalizing, and that's the most important of the first step. I reduce what we use in the first place. Electrifying and reducing the carbon emissions from the grid is not going to do the whole job. So we really do need to start using a lot less. And then it's modifying it, um, which you understand what it means, although it's made up. But I do mean you know, trying to understand where the energy flows are, where is the data, try to be able to control things with a more a higher level of granularity, try to take away some of the decisions from some people. For example, uh, you want to plug your car, and you want your car to do the best for the, for the environment, as well as save you money, as opposed to having to decide on all those things. So this modification is a great way to move forward. I'm going to show you a few examples of our research where under those three, head three headings, of course, they intercept and interlap, but you get a, an idea. So um, give you the example of Nottingham. Why rationalize is so important and how far it can get us. Nottingham has about six 164,000 homes. And now, have you heard of energy performance certificate? So maybe if you rent a home or, or if you've recently purchased a home, you might have had to have it um, analyzed and checked for its energy performance. So that's a little, uh, it's like a, a checkbox exercise for a little bit of maths that gives you a rating. And it's very much like your, the rating they get from appliances. So from green to red, we should all be buying green, but we don't often do that when we purchase properties. Although uh, very unlikely you're gonna go and purchase a fridge that is red. I don't know why, <coughs> but we still think the buildings are okay, they're not. But anyway, the government's proposing that all homes in the whole of the UK have to be at least an EPC level of C, i.e. be within the green zone by 2030, which is very soon, I'm sure you agree. In Nottingham, that would be 61% of the homes that have to move from orange and reds into green within the next few years. And that's very similar to the rest of England. So most likely where you are, or if you know the neighborhood even worse, Newer neighborhood, perhaps a bit better, but on average, we are about the same. About 60% of the homes need to be improved to that level. A home that is about an EPC level, an average of D, which is the average that we have in the UK at the moment, uh, releases about six tons of carbon per year. So per home, that's a lot of carbon. Now, let's assume that we did get them, get them all to EPC level C. Now, I live in an old Victorian house in a conservation zone. If you are with me, conservation zone, Old houses, it's a really tough job. 
I can't afford changing my windows because I can't change them for anything that is affordable in any way. It needs to be windows that are acceptable in a conservation zone, replaced like for like, but with double glazing, ideally triple glazing. I can't put any insulation on my walls, internal or external. So it's a really tough job to get to PC level C, and quite unlikely we can get there. But let's assume I can, and you can too, and all your homes get to PC level C, and you're healthier, and spending less money, and I'm sure you're thinking, oh, that would be good if you've seen your energy bills this week, this month. <laughs> I think that's the time it's going to hit everyone, isn't it? When you see your <laughs> heating going on in October and your gas bill comes next. Well, so if we did get them out to PC level C, the, they would be releasing about 4.5 tons of carbon per home. In Nottingham, that would lead us to a reduction of 247,000 tons of carbon, which still leaves us with 740,000 tons of carbon for the existing house stock alone per year. And of course, there's a lot of new homes being built. What does that mean? Well, there's equivalent of about 740,000 hot air balloons every year, or the equivalent of 10, 000, 10 times the area of the city of Nottingham in trees. So we cannot offset. Offset is just not an option. Because even here, that we're talking about older oh, homes becoming much better, we still have such an enormous amount of offsetting to do that just there's no room for everybody. So we need to do better. Those 4.5 tons of carbon, if you look into this, so let's assume your house has all got to that level, 42% of that to be coming from heating in average. Now, if we electrify heating and we can then tap into an electricity grid that is decarbonized, you're likely to get those 42% carbon emissions diminished or even disappearing, which is great. But that's just about half of the problem, isn't it? The other half is your choice of travel, your choice of food, the way you manage your waste. It's not one big win. It's lots and lots of really little wins. And then when it gets really complicated, because you leave the light on and think it's fine, it's just one LED that's been on. And indeed, one LED that's been on for a couple of hours is a tiny amount of energy and a tiny amount of carbon, also a tiny amount of money. But if all of us left one LED on for a couple of hours every day, just because it's fine, then altogether that's a lot of carbon. And it does seem quite small, but it's only when all those small things are put together that we're going to deal with the other 50% of the problem. So uh, one of the projects I've been looking at is looking at a roadmap for retrofitting Nottingham. So look at all those housing stock. There's a lot to this project, but I'm only going to show a few bits and pieces for you to have a, a feel for it. It's funded by the government. It's funded through the Community Renewal Fund. It's a leveling up fund agenda that has come out last year. So it's kind of a one-off fund the government had. Nottingham had four projects funded. Mo this is one of them. Uh, residential buildings represent at least 22% of the carbon emissions in the UK. If you start considering the, uh, your choice of transport, etc., then we're talking with doubling that up. 80% of those are still really bad. It still need improvement. So if we look at uh, what that really means, so this is really recent. So that's where you're likely spending your money in your energy bills. I think it just came out last month. It's from Mofgen. Uh, and you can see the big blob there is central heating. And central heating being on for six hours a day, I don't know how long it left you on. Uh, hopefully, nobody has the central heating on yet. So you spend about almost 10 pounds for six hours of heating at the moment. And it might still go up again next year, because we don't know what's going to go on. That, in comparison, is to be 2.63 less winter pounds for six hours. It's a huge increase, isn't it? So we can see that's a big chunk. And all the rest is lots of small chunks of um, energy and cost, of course, from your pocket. 
that also leads us to the idea of fear of poverty. Now, some of you might have heard of, um, I mean, I'm a professor, my husband's a professor, and I actually say we're in fear poverty now because we have an old house, and uh, fear poverty looks a proportion of your salary spent for heating your home or you're spending your energy bills, and that's quite a significant proportion at the moment. But also, the way government calculates fuel poverty at the moment excludes all the EPC level C and above, which, which means a lot of the social housing have been excluded from those maps because they've been improved recently. So in Nottingham, there's about 25,000 households so far considered to be fuel poor before the increasing cost. We expect a lot, at least another 15,000 that is not taken to that maths that's going to come there. It's a huge amount of people who can't afford the energy bills. So we must do something much better than just a one-off payment of whatever you're getting for £100 that's going to resolve your problems. I don't think you will. Now, lots of complicated things, but the, the one thing I want to show you is the red bit. So the red bit is all the houses you have to bring to green bit. So the EPC levels before C. And you can see, of course, the older the home before 1900s, 19, so my Victorian little home, home is here somewhere. Uh, and the, the, the newer the home, the more green you have. So, but there's this big chunk of red that we have to deal with. So we looked at that, and we um, look at the fact that actually the Nottingham housing stock is mostly made of houses. There's very few flats. Be a bit different from parts of London. Um, and the majority of them, 80% of all the homes are heated by heat, uh, by gas. And we think the housing it themselves is over 90% for all the house types in Nottingham. So everyone really is using gas. We have to get away from gas within five years or so. So that's quite a complicated matter to deal with. Anyway, we pick those houses then and turn them into models that represent the housing stock. So that if you live in a detached, semi-detached, middle terrace and a terrace that has a typical floor plan, you likely represent it here. We use typical materials uh, and then these are the periods of time where those houses had a significant change. So for example, we put together all the pre-1930s homes because they tend to have solo, a solid wall and they tend to have a particular design, a particular type of materials between 1930s and 1970s until we start having bureau regulations that start to control. And then there was a big change between 1980s and post-1985 where the bureau regulations really changed significantly. So we divide them into those four big periods of time to try to represent the majority of the stock. What you can see here is those detached, semi-detached, etc., represented for those years. So the annual heating demand for each of those house types that are built for those years. So you're likely to find your house here somewhere and have more or less representation of where you probably are, if you haven't yet achieved any piece level or C. And then we looked at the, the uh, retrofit measures. We called them deep retrofit measures, so getting to the best we absolutely can. Now, getting to the best we absolutely can would involve Loft insulation, floor insulation. Loft insulation, possibly the majority of you already have. We do. Floor insulation, probably very few of us will have because for the majority of our homes, at least one third of the home, if not half of it, or not two thirds, is actually solid floor directly to the ground. So putting insulation will mean digging it all up. I um, uh, don't know how many people are for digging or your floors up to put insulation, but not many. Uh, and then wall insulation, which is great, but again, doesn't work for everybody. Glazing in windows and doors. Uh, and again, if you have a property that already has double glazing, you're likely to be replacing it for double glazing that is more than and better. 
So we looked at the deep retrofit measures, I, let's do it all and get to the best, but we also look at what really happens and what it really happens typically, for example, we don't have floor insulation and glazing. And depending on the property age, there's other things that you're not likely to do. Then we looked at, so I'm not going to show you all of those properties. As you can see, there'll be 16 different types. And from there, lots and lots of graphs. But just as an example, this is a detached property. Prior to 1930s, you can see they'll be expected to be leasing about uh, 100 kilowatt hours per square meter for heating. And as you go towards those retrofit measures, it starts getting down. And you can get an improvement of almost 80% just by improving the fabric. Now, why is this important? Because we can't decarbonize the heat without improving the fabric. It doesn't work, and I'll show you more. Now, typically, we wouldn't do most of that. So you can see here is what ideally we would all do, all those steps. If we all had lots and lots of money, and we're not bothered about all this disruption that's going to cause, then that's probably what we would do. And this is what we typically would do. So if you have a newer home, you would do nothing. I don't know how, much of how many of you have homes that are post 1980s, uh, but the majority of people who do, very unlikely going to retrofit them because they're new homes, what they consider new homes. Uh, the older homes, there are certain things that you're just not going to be able to do very easily. Now we looked at decrease of carbon emissions as a result of those strategies. And of course, you can see uh, on the left, on the brownish color, looks very different on the screen. But the brownish color to the left is if you had a gas heating system. And the one that looks pinkish and is lighter is if you then turn to um, electricity. Now, if you just applied um, an associate pump, for example, to those particular properties, you do look at a significant reduction in carbon. However, that's not entirely true, because when you are using an associate pump in a very old leaky house, you're not very likely to get the same levels of comfort and the same levels of um, coefficients of performance as in a very um, updated home or a modern home. So if I look at the next graph, the, the one, let's use the same colors, the brown one and the pink one, the brown one is using gas. So that's the cost of running those properties with gas, or the cost of running those properties with electricity. This is up to the increasing price of April. So it's still going to update to this now. So if you are just to change from an associate pump, which I know there are grants to do, and a lot of people are looking to do that now, you'll be paying a lot more for your energy than you'll be paying with gas, even with the increasing cost for gas. Not, not only that, but typically, associate pumps are designed to work at a much lower temperature, 35. Some of them go to 55 degrees. And your radiators and your heating, your gas, have been designed to work at 75 after 80 degrees. So you would have cool radiators. If your property is leaky and you have a small radiator in a corner and an associate pump, you'll be cold. And you'll be spending more money than you have done otherwise. So it's really a lose-lose situation. Don't go that down that way. Do not um, just change your, your gas for electricity at the moment without really looking at where you can integrate your fabric. Now, we've also been looking at the actual costs of retrofit. And for a typical social home, it's about 69,000 pounds to do a deep retrofit. So to get to the, to the all the way to the end, that's really expensive and a lot more than the majority of people expect. In fact, all the, all the publications we've looked at, they talk about 20, 15, 20, 25,000 pounds and we're doubling, even tripling in some cases. And that's because the one, there's lots of enabling works that you, you know, typically are not taken into account. Um, there are lots of problems you might have to resolve before you can actually insulate a, a wall, for example, or before you can even change the windows or redo your roof. 
Um, and also because it actually doesn't take into account all of those steps and the disruption it causes. For a privately owned property, we expect to be in average at 80, 82,000 pounds for a, a good retrofit that gets you a really high level of energy efficiency. So this is really not affordable for the majority of us. Not saying don't do it, do all you can. Uh, and if done as much as you can, then do tap into the government grants for associated pumps because those are still available. But there are no grants for improving privately owned properties. And we really need those because otherwise we're just not going to do it. The other thing that we found is that there's a significant uh, disparity between the, uh, the, the, the cheapest cost and the most expensive cost for the same type of strategy. It's a very hard thing to do because there's not there isn't enough data because most people go to a contract and say, I want to change the windows, I want to insulate the roof, fix the roof, do the wall insulation, and you do all at the same time. Um, so it's very difficult to really separate the cost of particular things. So I might go into the roof and say I have to change some, some of the roof tiles, and those are not necessarily part of retrofitting to an energy efficient standards. But we did find that actually the difference in cost between the cheapest and the most expensive is significant. Uh, and it might have to do with the property type as well. And of course, if you have, a, for example, a bungalow, you have more external walls, so it's likely to cost a lot more uh, in depending on your house shape and type. So what the thing to remember is actually to retrofit homes to the future home standards that started to come into place this year and it's going to be rolled out into 2025. It's five times more expensive than actually building the homes well now. Uh, so if you are to buy a property, do not buy a property that's built to today's building regulations. Buy a property that's built to tomorrow's building regulations. Because otherwise tomorrow you're going to spend five times more fixing it. And we're only talking three years from now, so we're not talking for a very long time away. It's very hot today, isn't it? One of my pet subjects is overheating. I'm from Brazil, and I came to the UK not to expect to be very hot in the buildings in the summer. But I don't know you, but this last summer we all been boiling. Nobody can sleep, and it's been quite disruptive. Now, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, it was nice to have a nice summer. It was sunny, and you know, you could do stuff outside, and then it's true. I'm going to paraphrase um, Edith, the Guardian cartoonist. I don't know if you know her. She's amazing. But she said, um, she said no, she's drone, but I'll say it. Having, uh, heat, heat waves are like handsome men in character dramas. Really nice at first, but they're just going to ruin everything. <laughs> and it's very much that. It's nice to have sunshine out today, uh, but that's just not natural or real. And that's just going to cause a, a whole lot of other problems. Now, of course, it's easy enough to get an air conditioning unit, 100 pounds in BNQ, possibly can then sleep well. But this is just a trap. You know, you're going to be using energy, which in turn is being generated through carbon and releasing carbon emissions to be generated. And you're also going to be pumping the hot air out, warming up the outside of your house and the planet. So then you have to cool it down even further because you just contributed to warming it up. Uh, and the further we go, the worse it gets. We can't just expect those technologies to come and replace that. So this is the universe of Nottingham. It's, uh, it's eight um, eco-homes that we do all sorts of tests. Each one of them is being sponsored by a different business, funded by lots of different government grants. So we do lots of different things on them. They're built with different materials. They have different testing and of technologies of people using. And they're also connected as a, a smart grid, as a community that's energy efficient themselves. So we've done a lot of work there looking at climate resilience and looking at the fact that actually if we design the homes well enough today, they're not going to overheat tomorrow, not in the UK, because we're not in extreme climate. The problem is we're not designing with warm weather in mind, and we are in a global warming scenario. So in the next few years, we're likely to have more and more of those heat waves, 
and more and more disruption. And you know, offices being closed, people being told to stay at home. It's like when it's really snowing, isn't it? <laughs> what is the, what's going on here? Um, so the message is that designing a home that performs and is comfortable in the summer is doesn't cost you any more. It's just being a bit clever about allowing the sun only when you want in the winter, but in the sunshine, in the, in the summer, keeping it out, which is your primary source of heat. It's enabling ventilation to enable that, that um, heat to be extracted without excess um, excess use of energy, but also being clever about how you manage that. Because one of the things that we should be doing is what we do in the Mediterranean, right? It's close the houses when it's too hot. It's close all the windows, put the shutters on, close it all up, leave the heat out. And when it's cool, when it's night time, and in the middle of the night, just open it up, let it freshen up. But we've done a lot of work on looking at that, and a lot of our work has then informed real-life developments, and so I'm going to get to you next. And I'm using use one of our real-life developments at the Trent Basin in Nottingham as an example of this mattifying work that I've been talking about. So Trent Basin is situated in a very large redevelopment zone in Nottingham. We've been working with developers in the City Council for the last decade, really informing the vision and developing this, uh, what is the low, low energy sustainable development of homes. Not zero carbon yet, because it couldn't, it, the developers could just couldn't afford getting that far. But we are looking at doing that in the next stages. So when I talk about Smartify, uh, one of the works that we had done on the Trent Basin was, well, we, we pushed the developers to go as far as they could. We've made those, uh, those homes really energy efficient and to encourage sustainable living, and they have done so. But there was a limit for how affordable they were because they were selling uh, homes in a very risky site. So when we got to that limit, we said, maybe there's a different solution. We proposed we connect them as a community energy scheme. And we got to fund it through uh, Innovate UK and Project Scene. And we uh, that helped, and Euro that helped us fund the capital. So that is the, the largest community energy battery in Europe. There, there's a large PV array, which initially we put in the direct sites. And as the sites get got developed, we then moved the arrays onto the buildings. So they're now being used by the residents. And very importantly, there's a community hub that is an area that people can meet. So we encourage that community capital and people get to get started to know each other. But they also can engage with energy and they can understand where they sit. So for example, they can see themselves in this, um, what we call a digital twin. So that's a digital twin of the development. If they log in, they can see how they house their house is performing in relation to other homes of the same type. Of course, they can't see the neighbor, but they can see they might be at the, low, the higher end. So you know, I have a two, two bedrooms property with two people and actually consuming twice as much as the other two bedrooms property with two people. So maybe I'm doing something wrong. So when it comes to smartifying, it's two, two ways things. One, researchers like ourselves can actually see what's going on, what are the bottlenecks, what are the failures, and work on those to improve. But we also can inform the public, and people can engage with what the actual difference that they can make with those little wins. We won lots of awards, which I'm not going to cover there. We're welcome to read later. And got further funding to look at what we call behind the meter. So we then took them. We're just doing that now taking the community off the grid uh, so they can work within the community. And the idea here is that, well, maybe you don't have enough roof space to generate electricity, but your neighbor has lots of roof space. We are renting the roof space, and everyone is sharing the energy that goes either into the battery or into the homes, or then is sold back to the grid. So the community energy uh, provides grid services, which generates capital to pay back the investment. It's a different way to deal with community energy. Which means the, the homes don't get 100% green energy at the moment until all the, <coughs> the assets are paid back. 
And now we set up things, for example, Alexa. You might have Alexa in your house. In those homes, the Alexa can tell people, your energy use today is twice as much as last year at the same time. Are you doing anything different? Did you leave anything on? So we, we changed the way the uh, voice activated well, Alexa's echoes, whatever they are, so they can actually prompt people to make a difference. And you can go online and see uh, the, the energy flows and how the energy center is doing. And we have a really high level of granularity, so we can see socket per socket how much energy is being spent. Of course, people have signed up to allow us to look at the data, and you're never going to be able to tell which uh, property. <laughs> Sorry, my kids are calling me outside, so I'll be with you. I mean uh, but here's an interesting image for you. The left side is prior to COVID. So you can see there's a little bit of peak of energy in the morning when you get ready for work or to school or whatever you have to do those days. You leave the house and there's just a, a same level type of heating and you come back in the evening you have a high peak of energy. Well, COVID has changed that significantly. It might still be changing now. People get up a lot later. <laughs> the peak of energy is just before nine o'clock when everyone is perhaps just getting their coffee and tied up their face in their pajamas to sit down in front of the computer. And you have a big peak at lunchtime, uh, people working from home and eating at home. And of course, then you continue to have the early evening peak. So you have, it's quite a different profile, which is really significant when we look at the energy systems. Because through the day, we have more generation of energy through PVs, for example, here in the, in the community. Uh, sometimes with wind turbines and things that it can be through the night. So there's a, we need to try to match up the generation of energy with the need for energy and then try to, um, to what is it, excess, be stored in batteries. Now, this is really interesting because where the batteries will come from, have a look at this graph here. This is an aggregation of 21 homes for those for the same development. And you can see a big amount of energy right at the beginning there, just being used at in the middle of the night, one in the morning, whatever that was. So that's an electric vehicle being charged, just one. And that's the energy for 21 homes across all the day. So you can see the difference that one electric vehicle can make to the grid. So we need to be really careful and really clever of how we use that. And that brings me to the next but um, you can see that's the EV charging just in the yellow there. Proportionally, the amount of electricity is just gigantic. But we see EV vehicles or electrical vehicles as energy assets too, because all they have is little batteries that it can move around to suit you. So we then had a project called eVelocity that was looking at bi-directional charging. So looking at the ability to not just charge a car, but discharge the car and charge a home. So you can use the battery from the car to make up for that difference so when there's availability of energy and when you actually need energy in your home. We use the university campuses and some other, um, well, Leeds City Council, Nottingham City Council now, and a, and a few other universities to look at how that could work. Uh, we looked at hotspots so where people would park their cars or their vehicles. In this case, here is a fleet, so it's a, um, working vehicles. And also, you can see when they're being in use or not in use. So in white is when they are parked somewhere not in use. Some fleet are constantly in use. Uh, in red is when <coughs> all the vehicles or their fleet is in use, which is really very rare, as we find out. So with that, we can then look at the vehicle availability, which means uh, where is it? how much battery, what's the battery state of the battery, and how much energy you need. So uh, you might say, oh, actually, I don't want to discharge my car because I'm not driving the next morning. Well, you can just tell our intelligent program how much charge you need the next morning and by what time. So then it can decide whether your, your car is being charged or discharged 
powering your home or just powering your home or powering from the grid. Um, and then we mix that with uh, renewable energy innovation and also the carbon intensity of the grid. So there's a lot of this work around intelligence and the algorithm development in the background to make those decisions. So we can then tell, the, or we can tell you, or we can tell the machine, it's a good time to charge, or it's a good time to discharge, or it's a good time, but now you need to charge it fully, so by six o'clock it's ready to go. Uh, so what's next? Now we're looking at digital twins at a much larger scale now. So we can have not just the physical built environment built in 3D, but the ability to feeding data into those um, that digital environments so we can extract answers and also trying to identify where the problems are. And that can inform both energy um, in buildings or energy consumption and management, but also things like transport or even health outcomes. And with that, I thank you for being here again and thanks for all the people who come sit on the floor. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on a platform of your choice and visit the iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.